Well, hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we're doing an archive show. This one was first broadcast back in 2017. We hope you enjoy. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. unlocked come on in everybody come on in Ooh. oh my you folks look like you've been doing a little party what New Year's Eve huh not feeling too good huh oh well come on in come on in we've got some Alka-Seltzer over there if you want it I've got a pot of coffee on Chester you don't look too good you you yeah you had a bad night well <laughs> Come on in, everybody. Maybe I can make you more comfortable. Hi, this is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the old-time radio show where we play radio programs we actually remember from when we were kids. Why do we remember them? Because <laughs> we're old. Because uh, we're baby boomers. But everybody's welcome. If you're not a baby boomer, well, come on in anyway, because I think you'll really enjoy the selections we have tonight. Now, a lot of these programs, we might not remember from radio. We may remember them from their uh, television incarnations that uh, followed many of these programs. And, uh, we Some of, some of them we, we do remember hearing on radio. I remember hearing Gunsmoke when I was a kid. Come on in. There, there's some seats over there. You're all welcome. And glad to have you along for the ride. Well, we've got a great show lined up this week. We have an Adventures of Philip Marlowe that uh, is kind of special to me. And we're going to follow that up with a really funny episode of the Jack Benny Show. And then we are going to visit Dodge City, Kansas for an episode of Gunsmoke. It is one of the iconic episodes. I, I, I say that more often than not, but there was a lot of iconic episodes of Gunsmoke. But this one really is good. It uh, has a great character study and a really, really suspenseful ending. And you're really going to enjoy it. So we're so glad to see you. I'm glad you all made it into the new year. Welcome to the first show of 2017. So get comfortable because we're going to get started in just a minute.
things started this week, we're going to have an Adventures of Philip Marlowe. And this one was first broadcast on July the 7th, back in 1951. It's entitled A Seaside Sabbatical. And this one's kind of special to me, because the seaside that Marlowe visits in this episode is Long Beach, which is my hometown, as many of you know who've listened to this show for any amount of time. Philip uh, visits a number of familiar places to me in Long Beach and also brings back some memories about places that were there back in 1951 that aren't there anymore. We'll talk a little bit about that at the end of the show. But one thing I think you might notice during the show and you might question is when Phil goes to have his car parked by this young man who's the parking attendant, the young man mentions something about all the people from Iowa and Long Beach. In fact, Long Beach got to be called Iowa by the sea. Why was that? Well, for some reason, in the late 30s and particularly in the 40s and the early 50s, thousands, literally thousands of people moved from Iowa to Long Beach. No one knows exactly why other than they probably got tired of the winters in Iowa. I've been in Iowa in the winter and I know it can be pretty severe. And they apparently wanted to kick their heels in the Long Beach surf and enjoy the sunshine and the sand. At any rate, many, many thousands of them moved, so much so that every year they would have an Iowa picnic. And the picnic often had the governors of both California and Iowa represented at the picnic to give speeches. And it was a chance for people who had migrated from Iowa to Long Beach to hear stories about their beloved homeland. You might think this was uh, maybe not as big a deal as I'm making of it. Well, let me tell you, in the 50s, those picnics oftentimes had over 100,000 people at them. In fact, I heard, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard that Long Beach had more Iowans than any other city in the country, with the exception of Des Moines. Go figure. So here we go. From July the 7th, 1951, a seaside sabbatical on the adventures of Philip Marlowe with Gerald Moore. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. There's no other end, but they never learn. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, A Seaside Sabbatical. Wire in my hand said it all. Need your help, urgent. Meet me at 8.30 tonight, Ship's Galley Cafe, Long Beach. Signed, Dale Higgins. The time and the place were known factors. The need for help, the urgency, and most of all, Dale Higgins were unknown. And my hazy recollection of algebra told me that three unknowns are mathematically impossible to find. Call it a challenge. Call it money. Call it a chance for a short dinner. Call it anything you like. But 8.15 found me pulling into a parking lot on Ocean Boulevard. Not far from the amusement pier. Just leave it there. I'll be right with you. 
Oh, hello, Mr. Marlowe. Hiya, Red. How's it going? Oh, great, thanks. What brings you to the capital of Iowa? Corn. <laughs> my aim's getting bad, Red. I thought I'd come down to the pike and try for my limit at a shooting gallery. Gee, really? Yeah. Greatest practice in the world. Is it still 35 cents and no questions asked? Huh? Oh, to park the car. Yeah, that's it. Okay, kid, keep it. Oh, thanks. Hey, I, I mind if I recommend the quick quack? How's that again? Used to be the dead duck. Best shooting gallery on the pike for my dough. Oh, that quick quack. Oh, sure. Anybody be a fool to go anywhere else, Yeah, huh? my sentiments exactly. See you, Ren. You bet, Mr. Marlowe. Red's a nice kid. His name was a natural. He was blonde. I bobbed along Ocean Boulevard in a direction that instinct and a blaring blue neon sign indicated would lead me on course to the ship's galley. The night was muggy and close. You wore it like an extra coat. And the ocean breeze I'd anticipated had retired in favor of alternate waves of fog that rolled in, engulfed you for a moment, and then suddenly rolled out again. I was very nearly on time for my 8.30 appointment with Dale Higgins, as I turned blue beneath the ship's galley neon and stepped inside to be greeted by tight little groups of faces that opened and closed to admit food, drink, and talk, all indigo. The door behind me closed on two thoughts. My dreams of a shore dinner were blasted, and the ship's galley emerged as the last place in the world for anyone in need of urgent help to discuss his problems. But then, I didn't know Dale Higgins. Are you Philip Marlowe, by any chance? That's right. Yeah, it looked like you were looking for someone. I'm Higgins. Oh, oh, how are you, Higgins? Do we talk here? Uh, probably not very well. No. Uh, walk along the beach? Oh, fine, fine. Oh. Say, Higgins, did you ever wonder why people pack into hot little rooms on a night like this? Oh, you mean the ship's galley? Yeah, well... Philosophy is not my business, Marlowe. What is? Well, I don't quite know how to tell you, I guess. Well, your wire said urgent. That's good enough for openers. Yes, well, the truth is I was a little quick sending that wire. Oh? I was pretty upset about a situation at the time, but things have resolved themselves now. I won't require any help. Uh-huh. Well, you ought to know. I expect to pay you, of course, the trip down and your customary fee. That'll be 25 a day in expenses. Seven cents a mile for 23 miles and... Uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. 35 cents for parking my car. Yeah, uh, seven times 23, $1.61. $35? $1.96. $26.96 altogether. Is cash all right, I suppose? <laughs> Always has been. Uh, Marlowe, I am sorry about this. I didn't set out to bring you on a wild goose chase. But yes, looks like I've got the right amount. Thanks. Don't worry about it, Higgins. Anybody can change his mind. Yes, I, I guess that's right. Well, uh... Thanks for your trouble. Not at all. Eh, well. Mm -hmm. Mr. Marlowe! Hmm? Mr. Marlowe, wait! I turned in the direction of a voice, but the fog has a cute way of diffusing sound as well as sight. And I realized I wasn't closing in on anything, that the fog was circling me and I was circling it. So I stopped and waited. I listened and heard nothing but the sound of the sea and the faint wheezing of the pike calliope. Then suddenly it hit me. Somewhere along the fog-swept beach, a girl had called my name. And nobody knew I was in Long Beach except Red at the parking lot and Dale Higgins. Yeah, the choice was obvious. Did she find you okay, Mr. Marlowe? Yeah, yeah, Red, she did. You tell her where I was? Oh, I sure. 
I told her you and me always did our shooting at the Quick Quack. Good boy. Now tell me who she is. Who she is? Yeah. You, you mean you, you don't know her, Mr. Marlowe? That's the general idea, Red. Well, well, I, I, I guess she's my age. Yes, I know. Who is she? She's... Yeah. She's... You, you want your car, Mr. Marlowe? <laughs> no, Red, not now. I think I left something back at the Quick Quack. Everything that was young and pretty along the pike was hanging onto a sailor's arm. Around Gene Arno's Quick Quack, the nearest thing to youth and beauty with a neatly lined 22s poised across the counter. Try your luck, mister. No, no, thanks. Just looking, I'm not buying. Yeah, see, I just lost my girl. Well, don't blow your brains out here. These guns is for shooting ducks. I see what you mean. We said we'd meet here if we got separated. Have you seen her by any chance? She's seven, eight feet tall, glandular case. She's three stalls down, build the toothpick. Thanks so much. Still just looking, not buying. Still just look... Try it from a distance. It looks even better. Go on, bud. Beat it. I spotted her. At least I'd spotted a frightened fawn of a thing who caught my eye as if we were the only two on the pike. And there was something about her that made me wish we were. I followed her away from the crowded amusement section up the ramp toward Ocean Boulevard. Suddenly, she broke into a run, darted into an alleyway. I wasn't far behind her. No one saw you, did they? Follow me. Like who? He might have. And there may be others. I don't know. I don't know. That makes two of us. Now, wait a minute. Let's talk, huh? I saw you meet him. I thought it was you at the parking lot. I saw you meet him, the ship's galley. Something like you lost in a mob. I'll kill you, you know. If you're with them, I'll kill you. I've got to before someone kills me. I don't know. I don't know about you. Now, listen, you. baby. Baby, I'm with you. Don't come any nearer. All right, all right. I can't be seen with you. I can't walk out of here with you. He's around somewhere. I know he is. Oh, Mr. Marlowe, you will help me. You'll have to. There isn't anyone else. Of course I will. Of course I will. Well, then look. As soon as you can, get your car. Don't let Val see you now. Val? You know Val. Listen, in your car, meet me at 7th and Anaheim. I'll get there. I'll have to. And then we can talk. Yeah, but wait a minute. 7th Hold it. 7th and Anaheim, Mr. Marlowe. Oh, I, I, I'm Dale Higgins. was a study in contrast all the way. The din and kaleidoscope of Rainbow Pier against the lonely sound of a foghorn. The gray feel of fog in the dank gray black of the warehouse district at 7th and Anaheim. An urgent wire signed Dale Higgins. Eh, Dale Higgins. And a guy who called himself Higgins. Husband? Lover? What? Well, here we go again, Marlowe. I parked the car and waited. The fog hugged the streetlight, but the sign was intermittently visible. I had the right place. I don't know how long it was before I heard the footsteps, but it was long enough for me to stretch my legs out along the car seat, lean my head back against the door, and feel the damp touch of fog sweep against my face from an open window. I remember starting to turn my head toward the direction of the steps and thinking that Dale had made it in good time. Oh! Now with our star, Gerald Moore, the second act of Philip Marlowe, and tonight's story, A Seaside Sabbatical. I could almost hear the chain pulleys clanking the first time I opened my eyes. 
and it took another game try before the fuzz faded away and the room slowed down to a Lambeth walk. Off somewhere, the faint sound of breakers. And I did the ceiling, the walls, and one corner of an expensively furnished room before I sent it on the fuzzy, indeterminate face at my bedside. A kind face, motherly and pleasant. It talked. I'm Mrs. Higgins. Oh, oh no. Yes, yes, I am. Uh, is everybody in Long Beach named Higgins? You don't really feel a bit well, do you? No, no, not really. Oh, we're awfully sorry, Mr. Marlowe. I know when Dale realizes what she's done, she'll be sorry, too. Yeah, I suppose. Dale being me? What, with a peer? She's often violent, I'm afraid. Such a high-strung girl. Gives way so easily, you know. Yeah. Imagines all sorts of things and then, well, just gives way. Yeah, yeah. But I won't worry you with that. Dale's my problem. Uh -huh. I, I won't worry you with anything, Mr. Marlowe. Just you get a nice rest. I'm a cinch. We'll pay whatever damages there are, of course. But I won't hear of you leaving now until you're much better. Oh. oh. Hey. Oh. Oh. The mother of the Higgins clan had locked the door and walked away. My head felt big and woozy and rammed down into my neck. I was not in the pink. Mother Higgins had ordered a nice rest and it looked like I'd need it. I don't like strange rooms and locked doors and high-strung girls who give way. I'm still trying to get out of bed when another door clicked slowly open on the other side of the room. My little frightened fawn was back. And my head hurt. I heard Marie with you. That's how I knew you were here. Oh, poor Mr. Marlowe. Did they hurt you? They sure did. It wouldn't do, you know, if they found me talking to you. I, I feel better now that you're here. I wish I did. What happened to you, do you know? I have a rough idea. Say, honey, how much do you weigh? 105 when I left the convent, but that, that's not important. Listen, I, I can't stay long. You know, a romance with you would be rough. Please, Mr. Marlowe. They're going to kill me. Val and Marie, I... All right, all right. Now settle down. They are, and I don't know why. Maybe if I knew why, I'd understand. Yeah, but listen, I... I didn't even know Val then. Val? Val Nichols, a friend of Marie's. She sent him to the boat to meet me, and... Ever since then, I just know they are going to kill me. Dale, listen to me. Now, I don't know Val. As a matter of fact, until you told me, I thought his name was Higgins. And I don't know Marie. But what makes you think they're going to kill you? You met Val last night. The ship's galley. You talked to him. And Marie was just here. Oh, don't, don't try to confuse me. You're all I have. All right, honey. But tell me, isn't Marie your mother? My stepmother. Daddy's dead. And when I got off the Orange Coast the other night, whenever it was, there... There was Val. The Orange Coast? That's how I came back. Um, Mr. Muller, you, you, you're not trying to understand. If you won't help me, then... He's coming. Don't let him... I hope that you're not bothering Mr. Marlowe, Dale. No. No, I'm not. He asked me to come in. He, he likes me. Of course he does, dear. We all do. No. Feeling better, Mr. Marlowe? The worst way. Oh, I'm sorry. Come, Dale. Let's let Mr. Marlowe rest. Oh, you could use a little rest yourself, my dear. No. He wants me to stay. I'm not bothering. Oh, you're not bothering at all, honey, but maybe it would be better if you come back a little later. Yes, huh? yes. Of course it would, dear. Now, come along now. I can come back, though, Mr. Marlowe. You promise? Sure. Well, if you promise, I, I know you'll keep it. 
Never mind, Dal. I came in alone, you know. I can find my way out. She's sweet. She's sick. A very sick young lady, Marlowe. Troubled, confused. She's got nothing on me. <laughs> now, look, what is this all about? I don't know what day it is, what I'm doing here, who you are, anything. Well, it, it should all have ended with our meeting at the ship's galley last evening, Marlowe. You're not clearing anything up for me, you know. You've seen her, talked to her. You must realize that she imagines things. Right now, she imagines that she's been away from here a long time, that she came back a few days ago upon a ship... And her mother and I want to kill her. She did send me the wire. Oh, yes, yes. We had no idea one of her spells was coming on. We left her for a short time yesterday. The switchboard has its instructions, of course, and they reported it to Mrs. Higgins on your return. So we, we thought it best if I met you and... Uh, Called well, me up. Uh, it's, it's not in your line, Marlowe. You're right. They're going to keep it that way, too. And Mrs. Higgins realizes that she's going to have to do something about Dale Institution, perhaps some long-range treatment at any rate. Dale was in no condition to be running around last night playing mysteries and taking up your time. Whoever hit me in the head last night was in pretty good condition. If I had gotten there two minutes sooner, I could have spared you all that. You were following her? No, no, no. I was coming back from my boat. I had gone down to the harbor after I left you. Oh. As on the way back, I just happened to see Dale, and knowing the state she was in, I followed her, of course. I see. She doesn't know she hit me, does she? <laughs> I don't believe that she has the slightest idea what happened. Things started swimming again. Val Nichols became part of the draperies. I was trying to think, but it hurt. Everything hurt. The next time I tried, I was more successful. The sunlight was streaming in the room. The clock on the night table, visible for the first time, said it was almost noon. So I got up. It was still pretty fuzzy on the edges, but I found my clothes hung neatly in the closet. Managed to get them on in the right order and made it to the door that had been locked before, but it wasn't this time. Mr. Marlowe, you shouldn't be up. Well, I'm always flying in the face of great odds, Mrs. Higgins, Bill's character. <laughs> Even so, you should stay in bed a while. Oh, really, I'm fine, thanks. But you're not leaving, I won't think of it. You'll lunch with us at least. No, no, really. I've got to go, but I'd like to see Dale first. I sort of promised her I would. Oh, my. She's sleeping, Mr. Marlowe. Oh? We gave her a sedative. Doctor's orders, of course. She's had such a trying time, you oh, know. Oh, I wouldn't want I... to disturb her, no. But maybe I can call later. Oh, huh? that would be so thoughtful of you. I know she'll be disappointed at not seeing you, but I... Oh, Val, I... Uh... Up and about so soon, Marlowe? Yes, uh, Well, I... she's sleeping, isn't she, Val? Hmm? The sedative and all. I mean, I was just telling Mr. Oh, Marlowe... Oh, yes, yes, that... yes, yes. She's resting very well, Marie. Now, don't, don't fret about her. Well... I'll take you to your car, Marlowe. Uh, oh, oh, yes. Well, Mrs. Higgins, it's been... Uh... Oh, it's been downright dreadful, and I know it, Mr. Marlowe. If I can do anything to right this terrible wrong, please let me know. Well, if I can think of anything, I'll let you know. <laughs> goodbye, Mrs. Higgins. Tell Dale goodbye for me, will you? Oh, yes. Yes, of course I will. Well, it uh, looks like another lovely day, doesn't it? I followed Val Nichols' lead to an elevator and for the first time discovered that I was in an apartment hotel on a different stretch of Ocean Boulevard than the one I'd grown to loathe the night before. Val filled in a few last details as he walked me to my car in the underground garage. Seems he'd driven Dale and me to the apartment from 7th and Anaheim in my car and sent a lackey back for his. It fit. We shook hands and that hurt my head too. 
I drove off. Somewhere in the harbor district, the need for coffee and a few lungful of ocean air forced my hand. I parked the car and found both in a ship-shaped spot with a clear view of the docks. The first cup cleared my head, and the second one down near cleared the counter. Hey, watch it! I am. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. It'll wipe up. How about you, get any on you? No, no, I don't think so. You, uh, you know anything about ship schedules? Like what? Like that first one out there at anchor. The Orange Coast? Yeah. Well, seems to me she landed three or four nights ago. Don't know how long she'll be tied up. She's a fruit boat, though. Their office is just a block from here. Oh? More than likely, their book's solid, but if you want to check... Marlowe, there was a passenger Higgins on the Orange Coast when it docked Tuesday. Uh, Miss Higgins it was, Miss Dale Higgins, according to our records. Any record of where she boarded the boat? Let's see now. Oh, yes, at Macapa. Macapa? Brazil. Macapa, Brazil. Was she traveling alone by any chance? I really don't know. There's nothing here to... Any other Higginses aboard? No. Hmm. How about a passenger named Nichols? Any chance of that? No, no Nichols either. Okay, Thanks. Thanks very much. It was my turn to send a wire, only it was a cable this time. And it was going to be a while between answers, so I checked into a nice, clean, inconspicuous hotel. Had some food and a half bottle of aspirin and placed two phone calls. Dale Higgins was still resting comfortably, according to her stepmother. But Muff Benjamin was still willing to do anything for a buck. He was there in no time. I heard you were here, Ma. Something big? Could be. You tell me you're the guy who hears things. About you being here? Mm -hmm. Well, you know how it goes. People see people, people tell people. It's nothing. Yeah, I know. It happens all the time. Now, look, Muff, I gotta know things quick. Well, I, uh... For money. Who and what? All right. I get this. The name is Higgins. Mm -hmm. Man old enough to have an 18-year-old daughter. I don't know his first name. He's dead, I think. But the daughter's name is Dale. You got that? Uh -huh. And the wife that's surviving is called Marie. They have an apartment on Ocean Boulevard, the shore, I think it is. I got it. Okay. Now, a guy named Val Nichols, check on him, too. And if Higgins is dead, find out about a will. I'm ahead of you. Good. Get back as soon as you can, huh? You double the dough, I'll double the speed. You double. Hello. Mr. Philip Marlowe, please. Speaking. Oh, good. Give it to me slow, huh? Dale Higgins, accompanied to boat by none. None? Order of the Holy Cross has convent near here. Suggest you check there. Signed Emerson Ward, Macapa Fruit Exporting Company. Did you say Order of the Holy Cross? That's right. Do you wish to send a reply? No. No, not yet, anyway. Thanks. <laughs> You see, Father, if you could help me contact the convent in Brazil, I could find out how long Dale was a student there. That might shed some light on the situation, huh? I see. I'm not schooled in your ways, Mr. Marlowe. Still, we're both seekers after truth, aren't we? In this case, a very specific truth. That's right, Father. I want to help, of course. Your cable said this was a Sisters of the Holy Cross convent? Yes. If there were any way we could call down there. You see, Father, time's pretty important. Mm. 
If it's possible, we shall call, my son. Meanwhile, our prayers are with Miss Higgins. Come, Mr. Marlowe. My prayers were with the phone company, too, and with Muff, and, of course, Dale. Because if her version of things were true, she was in real trouble. Until I knew what it was for, there was very little I could do for her. Was the information from the sisters helpful, Mr. Marlowe? Well, they were very cooperative, Father. Dale's been a student there for almost seven years, winter and summer. Mm. Her stepmother visited her every day, but Dale never left the convent until two weeks ago. Maybe it all fits, huh? How bless her, my son. Thank you, Father. And thank the sisters of the Holy Cross. Muff Benjamin was waiting at my hotel when I got back. <laughs> it was another study in contrasts. So far, I dealt with a priest, an informer, and a sister superior. And together, we were all coming close to an answer. His name was Dale Higgins, too, the doll's father. Died seven years ago, loaded. Yeah? Left the second wife, Maria, good income. But the big load went to the kid. All right, what'd you get on Val Nichols? Oh, he's a bad one. Yeah? Specialty is knocking down rich widows. Currently fraternizing with this Marie Higgins thing. Bless you, Muff. Huh? I mean, here's your dough. You do look so much better than when you left, Mr. Marlowe. Really? Is Dale still sleeping? Why, yes. I think I'll look in on her, huh? No, I, I mean, I'd rather you didn't. Where is she, Mrs. Higgins? Mr. Marlowe, you have no... I right. wonder if she liked it at the convent. What? Seven years is a long time to be away from home. A lot of things can happen in seven years, you know, Mrs. Higgins. You can even end up legally dead. Why, I, I'm sure I don't have any idea. Dale's dad must have thought a lot of her. I'll bet she was pretty close to him, too. She, she was. They... Mr. Marlowe, what are you... Do you tell me, Mrs. Higgins. There's nothing to tell. Dale I... seems to think there is. Which room is hers? She, she isn't here. I... Oh, Mr. Marlowe, don't ask any more. Oh, no, she's with Val, huh? On his boat. Oh, how did this ever happen? I didn't want it this way. I thought if she could have been declared legally dead, oh, I'd have taken care of her. I, I, I mean, kept her there in the convent. No one knew she was there but Val. Val had to have her really dead. Is that expensive, Mrs. Higgins? Oh, help her, Mr. Marlowe. He'll do it this time. He'll kill her, I know. Believe me, I don't want how that. How long have they been gone? Not long. Half an hour, maybe, but no longer. I'll go with you. <laughs> Marie really cracked on the way to the harbor. It was going to be a fishing accident in the channel. And Val would get away with it, too, unless we found something that could outpower his 30-footer. It was called the Queen Marie, one guess who had given it to him. I found the boat I needed, all right, but the skipper seemed reluctant to go for it. Wildest thing I ever heard of. I tell you, it's a matter of life and death. The Coast Guard can't go on every day. Look, look, a month ago we needed you off Balboa when our motor conked out and you came. But we've received no distress call from the Queen Marie. What do you think this is I'm giving you? Please, don't waste time talking. All right, come on, how about it? Okay, but if this isn't on the level, you're in some trouble, Marlowe. By the time we'd cleared the harbor, I knew Val didn't have a chance. Every boat in the area had been alerted. I didn't know about Dale, though. I just hoped the sedative Val had given her was merciful. The Coast Guard took care of Val once we came alongside the Queen Marie. And I took care of Dale. She was in the galley, tied securely. Still dopey, but she came around after a while. Oh... Mr. Marlowe, you... Take it easy, baby. You're okay. You... 
I was afraid you'd forgotten the promise. But you didn't, did you? It was night now, and the lights that stretched out along the shore looked friendly and warm. <laughs> friendly and warm. I wonder when people are going to realize that the only happiness there is in the world is what they can give each other. Happiness, that is. Not a stab in the back. But you know, there's one thing about me. Yeah, I have to admit it. I'm an optimistic fella. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and written for radio by Kathleen Height. Featured in the cast were Gene Bates, John Daner, Irene Tedrow, and Lee Millar, with Harry Bartell, Barney Phillips, Lou Krugman, Donna Hainer, and Stan Waxman. Gerald Moore may soon be seen in the Santana production, Sirocco. The special music is composed by Pierre Garagank and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. Be sure to listen again next week at the same time when Philip Marlowe says... This time an old lady got taken for a new kind of ride by a new kind of chauffeur. And I got involved up to a gun in my ribs. All because I decided to spend a quiet day at home. Don't miss Broadway's My Beat, featuring Detective Danny Clovers, the cop who knows every character, every star, every crook frequenting the Great White Way. It's tomorrow night at the Star's Address. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS here, Horace Hyde, every Sunday night, the Columbia Broadcasting System. From July 7, 1951, that was a seaside sabbatical on the adventures of Philip Marlowe with Gerald Moore, who was so very, very good in that role. I have decided that I am going to read those Raymond Chandler novels. I know that uh, Michael Connolly, uh, who I had the good pleasure of meeting and spending an evening with one time. He's the one that writes the Harry Bosch books and uh, the Lincoln Lawyer books. He said that one of his biggest influences was Raymond Chandler. I, I thought to myself, I enjoy his books so much, I should probably, I've heard so much about Raymond Chandler's books over the years, I've never read them. So I went to the library today and picked up a volume that has, uh, I think, four of the six novels that he wrote while he was alive. That was, uh, again, a visit to Long Beach, my hometown, and just a couple of things in there that he talked about the Pike. Now, the Pike was a large amusement park that sat right down on the ocean, and it had major rides, kind of like Coney Island. It had a huge roller coaster that actually went right out in the ocean, and it was called the Cyclone Racer. It had a huge double Ferris wheel. It had uh, just a lot of unique things. It also had a um, 
huge indoor swimming pool, which was one of the largest in the world at that time. And originally, I think it was called the bathhouse. But when I was a child, it was called the, the plunge. And my grandfather used to like to take uh, my sister and I and our friends uh, down to the plunge every, well, maybe every month or every other month. And uh, we would swim all day. And then afterwards, we would come out and you'd be right on the pike, which was like a midway. And there was a lot of these typical midway type hot dog stands there. And one of the most famous was Marfleet's. And it was right, right there across from the plunge. And he would buy us all a hot dog and a, and a soda. And those were the big foot-long hot dogs that they used to, used to sell down on the pike. And they also mentioned Rainbow Pier. Now, you might have wondered what that was. Well, this was a large circular pier that uh, started on Ocean Boulevard at one end, and then it went out into the ocean and curved back and came back to Ocean Boulevard. It was a pier you could actually drive on. And along the pier, they had uh, just the regular street lights, but they all had different colored shades on them. So it gave the appearance of a rainbow. And within the pier, the water that was on the inside of the pier was uh, very calm, and you could rent motorboats. And I remember my dad and my grandfather taking me down and uh, putting me on one of these motorboats and sitting with me. And, the, you know, as a little kid, you got to steer it yourself. It probably only went two miles an hour. But I remember getting a captain's hat uh, for being the captain. And I think I actually got a certificate saying I was a captain. It was a very famous, very famous location in Long Beach. It's long gone now. In fact, I just went on to Google Maps the other day, Google Earth, and looked at some of the areas down around Ocean Boulevard, and oh my goodness, it is pretty fancy these days, a lot fancier than it was when I was a kid. Now there's a big Weston Hotel and a big Hilton Hotel and uh, luxury apartment and condos all up and down the beach, but Anyway, it was fun to hear and uh, be reminded of uh, the place where I grew up. And that was the Seaside Resort of Long Beach, California. It's a lesson too late for the learning Made of sand, made of sand In the wink of an eye my soul is turning In your hand, in your hand Are you going away with no word of farewell? Will there be not a trace left behind? Will I
behind I could have loved you better Didn't mean to be unkind You know that was the last thing on my mind As I lie in my bed in the morning Without you, without you Each song in my breast dies a morning Without you, without you Are you going away with no word of farewell? Will there be? I'm glad to hear it because we have an episode of the Jack Benny Show coming up from 1951, March the 18th to be exact. And the Jack Benny Shows really didn't have episode titles, but this one has to do with Jack being sick in bed. And it's one of the episodes that doesn't have so much a story as just a lot of people dropping by and doing funny stuff. In this one, uh, we see that uh, Jack is visited by the doctor and the nurse and Mary and, or is Mary? I don't think Mary's in this one. Uh, Rochester and Dennis Day and Mr. Kitzel come by and try to cheer Jack up. So here we go from 1951, the Jack Benny Show. Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, as you all know, Jack Benny has been in bed with a touch of the flu. So yesterday I decided to drop by and keep him company. As a matter of fact, I read to him for hours. With almost human tenderness, the rolling waves of the Pacific cast the tiny life raft upon the gleaming white sands of the tropical island. Uh, just a second, Don. Oh, what is it, Jack? Would you please fluff my pillow for me? Well, sure. Thanks. Now continue reading, Don. Realizing that their arduous trip was finally over, Bert lifted Anne out of the raft, and carried her to a little clearing among the swaying palm trees. Her clothes were meager and tattered, doing little more than to conceal her wealth of feminine charm. 
As he reached the clearing, she opened her eyes, and without a word being said, she realized she was safe in his arms. Her eyes showed gratitude, admiration, and love. She reached up and pulled his head down until his lips touched hers in a flaming, passionate kiss. Hmm. <laughs> 39, he says. <laughs> well, I'm going to finish it anyway. It was months before the rescue ship arrived, and during that time, they spent their days exploring the island. It was a tropical paradise covered with coconut palms, breadfruit, and banana trees. One morning, while at the north end of the island, they discovered a cave the sea had hollowed out. Timidly, they entered. And when their eyes became accustomed to the darkness... They were amazed to find, running through one of the walls, a vein of solid gold. What'd you say, Don? Don? Huh, Don? Don, what'd you say, Don? Huh? Well, Jack, you fell asleep. Oh, 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 I'm sorry, Don. See, your voice was so soothing that... Hello, boss. How are you feeling? I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't know why I have to stay in bed anyway. Well, Jack, you better follow the doctor's orders. But I've been in bed for two weeks. Look at all the fun I've missed. The Chicago Cubs spring training at Wrigley Field, the golf tournament at Hillcrest, Jane Wyman's formal dinner party last Wednesday. Of course, I probably wouldn't have gone to Janie's party anyway. Why not? He wasn't invited. I was, too. The second time I called her, she said it was all right. <laughs> She's a sweet kid. Boss, it's time for you to take your medicine. I have it here. Oh, pills, pills, pills. Come on, open your mouth and swallow it. Here's your aspirin. <laughs> and, your, and here's your oreomycin. <laughs> And your four-way cold tablet. <laughs> and your vitamin pill. <laughs> and here, take this. Hey, wait a minute. What was that last thing you made me swallow? A peach pit. We ain't got no garbage disposal. <laughs> Oh, stop with that. Has the mail come yet? I'll go see. You know, Don, I'm so tired and bored of staying here in bed. What day is this, anyway? Why, well, it's Saturday, March 17th. Oh, yes, yeah, St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, oh, which reminds me, Jack. Did you hear the one about the Irish girl who was so happy because her boyfriend gave her an engagement ring with a fake diamond? Why would she be happy to get a fake diamond? Because it was St. Patrick's Day and she was glad to get a sham rock. <laughs> Don, Don, vitamin bath. Don, control yourself. You're shaking the room. Don, stop. Now, Don, stop, or I'll tell everyone it was you who got stuck on the freeway and held up 50,000 cars. Now, watch it. All right. You want me to finish reading the book? No, nah, I don't think so. Turn on the radio. I want to hear the news. Okay. 
ladies and gentlemen, we would like to bring you some appropriate music in honor of St. Patrick's Day. Oh, my name is McNamara. I'm the leader of the band. Hey, that's Dennis. Oh, we're few in numbers. We're the finest in the land. We play at wakes and weddings and at every fancy ball. Don, I want to hear the news. Get another stage. play the march from I want the news. I'll be marching along in the big parade on St. Patrick's Day. I'll be up hey, to Dennis me on this station, too. I march along the way and swing me over. Don, today. try and get I the news, will you? Italy okay. And tips me I want the news. The to hear to wear Shake hands with all the neighbors and kiss the Colleen doll. They're playing his records on every station. There came Brannigan, Flanagan, Milligan, Gilligan, Duffy, McCuffy, Malacca, Mahorn, Rafferty, Lafferty, Donnelly, Connolly, Julio, Julio, try and get the news. I'm sick. Oh, the Clancy. Oh, the Clancy. Whenever they got to say... Don, can't I get the news? Try another station, will you? Try another station. Can it be the breeze that fills the trees With rare and magic perfume? Well, at least he's singing my theme song now. Oh, no! Branigan, Flanagan, Milligan, Gilligan, 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 All I wanted to do, all I wanted was to hear the news. Yeah, what is it, Rochester? The mail just came. Good, good. Here's a letter in a pink envelope with a lady's handwriting. Oh, that's probably a get well card for my girlfriend, Gloria. Hand it to me, Rochester. Let me smell the envelope. Here you are, boys. Let's see. Yep, that's from Gloria, all right. Perfume? No, hamburger. She works in a drive-in. <laughs> Ground round Gloria, they call her. <laughs> You know, she, she can chop onions faster. Get that, will you please, Rochester? Yes, sir. Hello, Mr. Benny's residence. Hello, Rochester. How's moaning low? Oh, well, the boss is all right, but he's still in bed. I thought he got up Thursday. He did, but he had a relapse. A relapse? What happened? He looked at the calendar, saw it was income tax day, and I caught him just before he hit the floor. <laughs> Put him on the phone. That's what I want to talk to him about. Okay. It's for you, boss. Hello? Hiya, Jackson. How you feel? A lot you care. You didn't even come over to visit me. Well, I wanted to come over, but since you're sick, I thought your house might be guaranteed. That's quarantine. <laughs> guaranteed. A natural mistake for a chap who celebrated his 21st birthday in the second grade. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Now, what do you want, Phil? Well, it's about my income tax. I sent it in Thursday, but I don't know if I made it out right. What do you mean you don't know? Did you list your dependents? Yeah, I got them all, including the two kids and Remley. <laughs> Remley? You, you listed Frankie as a dependent? Certainly. But, Phil, a dependent is someone you support who doesn't do anything. Remley's in your band. Every week he sits in your orchestra with his guitar and... and... Say, you're right, he is a dependent. (laughs) 
Yeah, and he's getting self-conscious about it. A couple of weeks ago after the show, he came to me and he said, Hey, Curly, I want people to think I'm playing this guitar. Will you please buy me a bow for it? <laughs> well, let's forget about empty. Is there any, uh... Is there anything else? No, so long, Jackson. Look, I'll drop over and see you one of these days. Thanks, Phil. So long. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Look, I've been meaning to ask you, will it be all right if Bagby, my piano player, misses Sunday's show? What's the matter? Is he sick, too? No, but he just received word that his uncle died. Oh, that's too bad. Is Bagby taking it hard? Yeah, he's in deep mourning. He won't drink nothing but Johnny Walker Black Label. <laughs> Such devotion. Goodbye, Phil. So long, Jackson. Now, let's see. Rochester. Rochester, where's the mail? There it is on the bed, and here's the latest Collier's magazine. Collier's? Yeah, the one that has that article about you. Oh, yes, the one I wrote myself. Let's see. Yep, they even have it mentioned right on the cover. From audio to video via radio by Jack Benny. Here it is. And, gee, look at that swell picture of me in color. Oh, wait a minute, Jack. Did you write that article in Collier's? Uh-huh. All by yourself? Without your writers? Certainly. I wouldn't trust my writers with an important article like this. They always try to make everything funny. But, Jack, they must have some serious moments. Never. Last week, one of them made out his will, and it was so good he sold it to Red Skelton. <laughs> Not only that, one of them wrote a letter to his wife... Oh, hello, Mr. Benny. Oh, hello, Dennis. I'm glad you dropped by. Oh, I just thought I'd come over and cheer you up. Well, thanks. You need cheering up. You look awful. <laughs> look, Dennis Dennis, what's the matter with you? When you visit someone who's sick, you shouldn't tell them they look awful I shouldn't? No, you're supposed to tell them that they're looking well And that they ought to be up soon Oh, gee, Mr. Benny, you look great hmm. You ought to get up soon Thanks If you don't get up soon, you won't get up at all <laughs> Oh, now, now, Jack, Jack, don't get aggravated. You'll make yourself sick again. Oh, well, maybe you're right. By the way, Dennis, a little while ago, we were listening to the radio, and we heard them playing your records on all the different stations. Oh, those weren't records, Don. That was me in person. In person? Uh -huh. That's ridiculous. How could you get from one station to another so fast? I drink Hattacall. Now, <laughs> Now, look, Dennis. Dennis, listen to me. Look, I'm sick. Look. Eleven years ago, when you were just a kid, I discovered you. Yes, sir. I had faith in you and thought you'd go places. Yes, sir. I introduced you to my sponsor, and he thought you'd go places, too. Uh-huh. I put you on my radio program, and the critics heard you, and they said you'd go places. Now, for heaven's sakes, go already. All right, I'll go, but that's a fine way to treat a fellow who came over to cheer you up. I'm cheered, I'm cheered. I don't have to stay here, you know. I can go and sing Irish songs on the radio. I know, I know. Just go. Yes, sir. That kid drives me nuts. Say, Don, it's exactly noon. Maybe we can get the 12 o'clock news. Turn on the radio, will you? Okay. Flanagan, Flanagan, Milligan, Gilligan, jump him a cut him a lack him a horn. How does he do it? How does he do it? Turn it off. It's 12 o'clock. Now there must be, there must be some station that has the news. Here, let me try it. Help me sit up, Don. Okay. Here you are, Jack. Thanks. We might get it on this station. 
That's what happened in Washington today. This concludes our midday edition of the news. Oh, darn it. And now we'll continue with our recorded program. The one and only Cindy Lou will give her interpretation of My Heart Cries for You. Understand why we Don, did you try the CBS station? Oh no, I didn't, Jack. I'll turn on that one. Ladies and gentlemen, as is our custom every day at this time, we bring you a special attraction. And today in this featured spot, we have the Sportsman Quartet. Don, the Sportsman, my quartet. They would like to dedicate their number to their boss, Jack Benny, who for the past ten days has been sick in bed. Oh, isn't that sweet? Take it, fellows. <laughs> Wasn't that nice of the boys to dedicate that song to me? It certainly was, Jack. Say, boss, the nurse will be here pretty soon. Nurse? What nurse? The doctor called and said he sent him one over. Oh, fine. Now that I'm better, he sends over a nurse. In the meantime, you better take your medicine. Come on, boss. Open your mouth. Wait a minute, Rocha. Are you sure you got the right bottle? Oh, sure, boss. The druggist typed your name on the label. He wrote, this medicine's for Jack Benny. Star of stage, screen, radio, and television two weeks from now if I mix the prescription right. <laughs> well, I don't care if he mixed it right or not. I'm not taking any more medicine. In fact, I'm well enough right now. Yoo-hoo! Anybody home? Oh, Mr. Kiptoe! Well, hello, 
Mr. Ketzel. Hello, Mr. Wilson. It's nice to see you out from the freeway. <laughs> Gee, I thought I made up a joke. <laughs> well, Mr. Kitzel, it's really good of you to drop in and pay me a visit. Well, Mr. Benny, I came here not only to cheer you up, but my wife sent you this bowl of homemade soup. See? Oh, say, that looks wonderful. What's in it? What's in it? Carrots is in it, peas is in it, string beans is in it, a pound of tomatoes is in it, a cup of barley, some chives, onion, potatoes, and one matzo ball is in it. A, uh, a matzo ball? Yeah, in the shape of a shamrock in honor of St. Patrick's. <laughs> oh, yes. Look, a green matzo ball. Isn't it? <laughs> Just take a sample of this soup, Mr. Benny. You never tasted anything so delicious. Okay. Mmm. <laughs> you look better already. <laughs> See, that is good soup, Mr. Kitzel. But all the ingredients you mentioned were vegetables. Yet I thought there was a slight flavor of meat in there. And that's because for two hours, my wife was stirring it with a ham hock. <laughs> what? She's from the South, you know. No. Show sure, no. <laughs> well, Mr. Benny, I got to be running along now. I hope you'll all be well soon. Well, thank you, Mr. Kissel, and, and thanks very much for the soup. Oh, you're welcome. Goodbye. Goodbye, Mr. Kitzel. Goodbye, gentlemen. <laughs> you know, Don, that was so nice of Mr. K Don, what are you doing with that radio? Well, Jack, I know how anxious you are to hear the news, so I'm trying to get it. Oh. And now for the weather report. Due to low barometric pressure areas over the Pacific Ocean being neutralized by the warm moisture belt flowing in from the Mojave Desert, precipitation could be evident in the coastal areas with a high of 80 degrees being expected. Those who live in Oregon may have early morning fogs. If you're in Northern California, you may expect drizzles. If you're in Southern California, the low will be 52, and if you're in Arizona, I'll follow you. Turn that off, will you, Don? All I want is a little news, and I keep getting... You want me to get that, Jack? No, no, I can reach the phone. Hello? Oh, hello, Mary. How are you feeling? That's good. Yes, I'm getting along much better. My picture in Collier's? Sure I saw it. You're right, Mary. They really did play up my blue eyes. But I think they overdid it. Two would have been enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mary, I'm glad you called. Is there anything you need? Anything you want? Anything I can do for you? Just name it. What? Of course you don't get paid when you're off. <laughs> and you can stop that coughing. Well, look, Mary, Jack, I... Don't let me talk to Mary. She hung up when I told her she doesn't get paid. I can't understand... Oh, boss, the nurse is here! Oh, all right, show her in. Watch this, Don. I'll use a little flattery, and she'll let me get out of bed. Here's your nurse, boss. Well, well, well. A man certainly is lucky to get a nurse as pretty as you. Hmm, they didn't tell me this was a mental case. 
Look, nurse, I was just trying to be nice. Nice or not, I get 12 bucks a day, so stop flashing those blue eyes and shut up. But, nurse... Now open your mouth so I can take your temperature. It's open, it's open. Wider. Uh, Wider. Uh, why do I have to open my mouth so wide? I forgot my thermometer, so I took this one off the wall. Well, you can put it back. I'm getting out of bed. Oh, boss, your doctor's here. Well, thank heaven. Show him in. This way, doctor. Well... <laughs> Today. Wait a minute, you're not my regular doctor. You no, know, Dr. Christian couldn't come. He had a rehearsal. <laughs> now look, doctor, I feel perfectly all right. I want to get up. Yes, yes, by all means. I think it'll do you a lot of good. But, doctor, you can't let him up. Look at his face. Oh, I wouldn't worry about that. It's spring. Everything is turning green. <laughs> Now, look, doctor. Now, on second thought, it may be safer if I give you an examination. At first, I'll listen to your heart. Take off your pajama top. My pajama top? Yes. Here, I'll help you off with it. <laughs> doctor. Well, a contour chest. Hmm. It looks so comfortable. Doctor, stop sitting on me. Now, I'm doctor. I'm sorry. Now, look, doctor, I'm almost well. Why don't you just give me a shot of penicillin, and I'll be okay. A shot of what? Penicillin. What's that? <laughs> what do you mean, what's that? It's one of those new wonder drugs, like oromycin. Oro what? Myosin. For heaven's sake, doctor, what college did you go to anyway? You just asked me for a haircut and you'll find out. <laughs> what? Scissors. Scissors. Comb. Comb. Tonic. Tonic. Get out of here, both of you. Do you hear me? Now, out, out, out. I don't know... sent those people anyway. What a doctor and that silly nurse. Boss, boss, don't excite yourself. Well, I can't help it. Now I'm so upset, I don't know what to do. Well, Jack, would you like me to finish reading that book? No, no, turn on the radio. I still haven't heard the news. What station? I don't know. Try any station. Okay. Ahora, señoras y señores, para su placer en honor de esta ocasión, nos traemos a ustedes una canción popular. Esperemos que les gusta a ustedes. Dicky, my numbers, my numbers, come down, it's the man, it's time to my punch of a line. Finish reading the book to me. That's... Ladies and gentlemen, the very best Easter gift of all is the support you give through Eastern Seal, Easter Seals, to children who need your help. These Seals provide medical care, nursery centers, and many other things that are needed. So give and give generously to the Easter Seal Agency in your community, or send your contributions to Crippled Children, Box 779, Chicago, Illinois. Thank you. As the rescue ship slowly sailed from the island, Bert, Anne, and Valerie looked back toward... Excuse me, Don. Hello? What's that, operator? A transatlantic call from London, England? Put them on. Hello? How are you? Been doing a lot of sightseeing, huh? Oh, that's wonderful. You're coming back on the Queen Elizabeth? Oh, you'll love that. 
It certainly sounds like you're having a wonderful time. Goodbye. Now, Don, continue reading. Jack, I don't mean to be inquisitive, but that call you just got from London, who was it? It was the wrong number. Now, continue. <laughs> continue reading. Now, wait a minute, Jack. If it was a wrong number, why did you take the call? How often can you talk to London for nothing? <laughs> you know. Jack, if you weren't sick, I'd punch you right in the nose. Read the book, will you? Read the book. <laughs> Send your contributions to Crippled Children, Box 779, Chicago, Illinois. Be sure to hear Dennis Day in a day in the life of Dennis Day. Stay tuned for the Amos and Andy Show, which follows immediately. The Jack Money Show is heard by our armed forces overseas through facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. From March 18, 1951, that was the Jack Benny Show. Just a couple program notes on that one. Did you notice that uh, Jack wanted to, uh, or he mentioned, I should say, the spring training of the Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field? You might be thinking, what in the world is Jack doing in Chicago? Because after all, the Cubs play at Wrigley Field in Chicago. But the team was owned by the Wrigley family, and the Wrigley family not only owned Catalina, where the Cubs often did their spring training, but they also owned Wrigley Field in Los Angeles, which was a minor league uh, baseball field at that time. And the Cubs would come out there and play their spring training exhibition games. As I recall, Wrigley Field was right along Avalon Boulevard, and the reason it was called Avalon Boulevard is because Avalon was the town in Catalina or on Catalina Island. And Avalon Boulevard, therefore, ran from the harbor near San Pedro all the way into downtown Los Angeles. And that was the road that Mr. Wrigley would take when he would come over from Catalina Island and go into Los Angeles to do business. Let me see one other thing here. You might wonder why, if it was St. Patrick's Day, were they talking about taxes being due? Because taxes aren't due until April 15th. Well, taxes used to be due on March 15th. Four years later, in 1955, the tax deadline for filing was changed from March 15th to April 15th. And then uh, they mentioned four-way cold pills. Now, I remember those from when I was a kid. Do they still make those? I don't see them anymore. But I, I thought that was something that came up into my mind from when I was a kid. They used to have four-way cold pills. And I, I remember the ads for them, but I don't think I've seen a four-way cold pill in a long time. And then finally, Dennis Day <laughs> talked about being faster because he had just taken Hatticol. Now, this is, this is pretty interesting. I did not remember Hatticol, and I was wondering what he was talking about. Well, I did a little research. And it ended up that Hatticol was a patented medicine that was marketed as a vitamin supplement. Its principal attraction, however, 
was it contained 12% alcohol that was listed on the tonic bottle's label as a preservative, which made it quite popular, especially in the dry counties in the southern part of the United States. It was a product that was designed by four-term Louisiana State Senator Dudley J. LeBlanc, a Democrat from Vermilion Parish in southwestern Louisiana. Now, this guy was not a medical doctor, nor was he a registered pharmacist, but he had a very strong talent for (laughs) self-promotion. Time magazine once once described him as a stem-winding salesman who knows every razzle-dazzle switch in the pitchman's trade. Now, LeBlanc, as you might imagine, was a real entrepreneur. And he's well-known in other areas, too, but Hadical was the thing that made him famous around the country. He actually sponsored what they called Hadical Goodwill Caravans. These were touring shows, much like the old medicine shows, where LeBlanc actually brought in Hollywood celebrities, including such stellar names as Roy Acuff, Milton Berle, Lucille Ball, Minnie Pearl, uh, Mickey Rooney, Bob Hope, Cesar Romero, Dorothy L'Amour, Carmen Miranda, George Burns and Gracie Allen, Judy Garland, Jack Dempsey, Chico Marks, Hank Williams, and James Cagney to help him market the product. He also sponsored a separate touring show featuring notable jazz and blues musicians to attract African-American customers. Admissions to the Hadical Gala was two Hadical box tops for adults, one for a child. Considering that the 8-ounce bottle cost $1.25 and the family size 24-ounce bottle cost $3.50, and this, of course, was back during the late 40s, it was not a cheap ticket. In fact, adjusted for inflation, the prices today would probably be around $15 to $35 or $40 per ticket. The show still played to crowds of 10, 12, 15,000 people a night. And back in those days, there weren't many auditoriums that would hold that size crowd, so the shows played at ballparks, racetracks, and anywhere else where there were enough big bleachers to handle that many people. In a 15-month period ending March 1951, LeBlanc sold more than $3,600,000 worth of Hadical tonic. Then he sold his interest in Hadical for $8,200,000 to investors. The problem is, the enterprise soon collapsed under the weight of all of its debts. It was discovered all too late that LeBlanc had spent more in advertising than he was taking in in receipts, and he had concealed a $1,800,000 second quarter loss, $2 million in unpaid bills, and $656,000 in unpaid taxes. The following year, in 1952, LeBlanc was a guest on Groucho Marx's radio program. When Groucho asked him what Hadical was good for, LeBlanc answered with startling honesty. He said it was good for $5 million in my pocket last year. (laughs) Well, we can see why Hadical was in the news and a popular subject back in 1951, and apparently Dennis Day was a big fan. Way down in the Congo land lived a happy chimpanzee. She loved a monkey with a long tail. Lord, how she loved him. Each night he would find her there swinging in the coconut. 
Well, just to get serious for a minute, we lost a good one this past week. Miss Debbie Reynolds. I had the uh, pleasure of seeing her perform one time in person. You probably did too, because she really traveled the country and and did uh, many live performances. Plus, for a while, she had her own uh, own club in in Las Vegas where she performed routinely. I actually saw her at Disneyland. Oh. I guess it was probably about 1971 or maybe 1970. And she was uh, doing a double bill with uh, Roger Williams, the piano player. And it was an excellent show. But she always would end her performances with this, which became her signature theme song. Here's the very lovely Tammy. Cottonwoods whispering above Tammy, Tammy, Tammy's in love The old hootie owl, hootie who's to the dove Tammy, Tammy, Tammy's in love Does my lover feel what I feel? When he comes near, my heart beats so joyfully You'd think that he could hear Wish I knew if he knew what I'm dreaming of Tammy, Tammy, Tammy
That song is so, so beautiful. That came from the film Tammy and the Bachelor, which was released in 1957. It was the only Tammy film that uh, Debbie Reynolds played in. The Bachelor was Leslie Nielsen back in his young, youthful days when he was a strapping, strong guy before he started doing all the comedy, comedy films. It also uh, starred Mildred Natwick, and she uh, came into the room and had the discussion with Tammy about being in love as Tammy sang that song as she looked out over the bayou. She was so pretty. I was, in 1957, I was 10 years old, and I remember going to see that film, and <laughs> that was back during the time when you had continuous running shows, so once you paid, you could just stay in there, and they would just start the movie over and over again. And I bet you I watched that two or three times because I just was smitten with her, how cute she was. And I was only 10 years old. We're going to miss Debbie Reynolds. Very prolific. I liked her best as an actress, although she was a very good singer. And that song certainly testifies to that. We're going to miss you, Debbie. Thanks for sharing your talent with us over all these many years. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to stay up late. Good morning. Good morning to you. When the band began to play, the stars were shining bright. Now the milkman's on his way. It's too late to say good night. So good morning. Good morning, Doesn't that music just take you back in time to 1874, the fading days of the Old West? 
We are suddenly in Dodge City, Kansas, walking up Front Street, shoulder to shoulder with Marshal Matt Dillon, maintaining the law and order so that the good citizens of this fair community can be safe and sound. Along the way, we're going to bump into folks like Doc and Kitty and Chester and the whole gang on yet another episode of Gunsmoke. We are going to play an episode tonight that we have not played for quite a while. And this one was first broadcast on the 23rd of August in 1952. And for you baby boomers, it features a character that you remember from television, Hans Conrad. And he plays a character that was rather typical for him, a Shakespearean. And the name of this episode is, in fact, Shakespeare. It's a good one, and it gets very, very tense at the end. So let's pull up a chair, put our feet up, and go back to Dodge City, Kansas, and Gunsmoke. City and in the territory on west. There's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with the U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. It was the dust. The heat was bad enough in Dodge City, but out on the plain, it was the dust. The sun was a burning red-brown chip in the sky. And the sweat on a man never had a chance to drop. It was blotted and dried with dust. Doc Chester and I had ridden to old man Gore's place ten miles out. He'd had some trouble with one of the hands. Fellow had gone loco with liquor and had been shooting up the cattle. We found him, stripped naked nearby on his haunches, crying, drunk over a parched water hole. Doc had got him to bed and fixed him up some. And now we were heading back for Dodge. Darn horse. Seems he just bound to stomp all the dust in Kansas in my eyes. <laughs> Maybe the marshal buy you a camel, Chester. This keeps up. We'll all buy camels. I remember the time back in Waco when I was just Doc, small. Chester, you see something ahead on the side of the trail there? Um, yeah, maybe. It looks like some poor calf strayed off and dropped. I don't think so. Yeah, it looks like a man. Come on. Come on. Come on. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. 
Chester, get the water bag. Yes, sir. Uh, let me have a look, Marshal. Yeah. Let's uh, see. Heat. Is he all right? Well, depends on how long he's been lying here. Here you are, Mr. Dillon. Uh, Open up his shirt, Marshal. Chester, get some of that water on his wrist. All right. It looks like an Easterner, huh? Sure not dressed for this country. Oh, well, that's better. That's better. Try to get a few drops in him. All right, now. Well, not too much, Chester. <coughs> not in his nose, Chester. His mouth. Well, my gracious, I'm sorry, Mr. Dillon, but he moved his head. It's not so easy to... Hey, look, he's awake. You're all right, mister. Just take it easy for a bit now. Oh, with this too, too solid flesh would melt, thaw, and resolve itself into a dew. What did he say? Oh, it's out of his head, Chester. For this relief, much thanks. Forget it. Chester, get around the other side and shade him from the sun. Yes, oh, the sun. I begin to be aware of the sun. I don't blame you. Uh, what happened? The wagon shed a wheel, I fear, along the high road. I know not where I am. Uh, you're about four miles out of Dodge City. Uh, Kansas. Kansas. Uh, I would give all my fame for a pot of ale and safety. You better get him to town quick. He's in a bad area. Uh, you think you can make it on a horse? We'll take you into... We'll take him into Dodge. And he passed out again. We tied him across Doc's horse. Doc and I doubled up and Chester rode behind. The stranger was a tall, skinny man with a face like a friendly mule. Big hands and thin wrists stretched out from his sleeves. He had no papers on him, nothing. And until he woke up, we wouldn't even know his name. Doc settled him down in the back of his place, and he was still asleep when Chester and I rode out to where we figured he'd left his wagon. It wasn't hard to see when we found it. What color wagon would you call that, Mr. Dillon? Puce, Chester. Puce. I guess so. Seems to be some writing on the side there. Yeah. Oh, Irving Henry... Thespian supreme disciple of the immortal bard. Mm. I should have known he was a religious man. Uh, he's an actor, Chester, the immortal bard. Shakespeare, William Shakespeare, wrote plays, poems. Ah, ah, oh. ah but... You think he let the horses go, Mr. Dillon? Well, I was wondering that. Seems to me he'd have ridden for help instead of trying to walk. Horses couldn't have got out of the harness ourselves. Let's take a look at the wheel. Huh? Wish we could wait till the sun goes down. It's going to be awful hot work, Mr. Dillon. <clears throat> it's not too bad. The pen fell out. Must be another in the box at the back. Take a look, will you, Chester? Yes, sir. I'll prop the wheel up here. Ah. Mr. Dillon? Uh, yeah, can't you find it? Will you come here a minute? Uh, what's the matter? 
take a look in there. It took a second or two to get used to the darkness inside the wagon. And then I saw the hand sticking out from behind the trunk. You didn't have to be the doc to know that it was a dead hand. The body was of a man about 40. He was dirty. And in the greasy, torn waistcoat, I found a pocketbook with his name. Sam Matchett. And that was all. Below his left shoulder and his back was a patch of dried blood. And in the middle, a bullet hole. We got the wagon wheel on, hitched up our horses, and drove into Dodge. Doc? Oh, that you, Marshal? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'll be right out. All right. Get that fellow's wagon fixed up? Yeah, I brought it in. Is he awake? Oh, I haven't looked in the last half hour. I was making coffee. You want some? Uh, no, thanks. Oh, it's a funny thing about coffee when it's hot weather like this. Drink it scalding and it makes you feel cooler outside. Uh, look, Doc, I got to see that fellow. I want to ask him a couple of questions. Oh, that's so? I found a dead man in the back of his wagon. You don't say. You better take a look. Chester's bringing him in the side. Oh, sure, sure, sure. You want to go on back? Uh, yeah, thanks, Doc. Mr. Henry? Mr. Henry, wake up. Yeah, what? Oh. Your name, Irving Henry? Oh, Irving Henry. What is this place? Now, you got to listen to me for a minute. We found your wagon. Ah? Uh-huh. Did you let the horses go before you sat on your own? Of course. I could not let them remain to die. Well, how come you didn't take one to ride? I have a loathing of horses. I cannot bear one under my body. <coughs> there is a carafe of water beside the bed. Would you be good enough, uh, Mr... Uh, uh... Uh, Dillon, Matt Dillon. I'm the marshal here in Dodge City. Here you are. Oh, my thanks. Now, what were you doing with a dead man in your wagon, Mr. Henry? A dead man? A dead man shot in the back, lying in your wagon. This is very midsummer madness. I won't argue about that, but I'll thank you to answer my question. But it is impossible. It isn't true. I say it is. You lie in your throat if you say that I'm any other than an honest man. Look, mister, I didn't say you weren't honest. You're an actor. And you got a fine way of saying things, but murder's murder. I don't care how you say it. Now, I'm asking questions, and I want straight answers. Your pardon, sir, but... What you tell me, in truth, if, if it were played upon a stage, I would condemn it as an improbable fiction. I swear to you, I know nothing of a body. Did you come through Hayes City? Yes. Yeah. Do you know a man there called Sam Matchett? No. You had no trouble in Hayes City? No. What are you doing in these parts, Mr. Henry? Uh, I'm... I am touring the provinces... An actor eating the bitter bread of banishment. My talents are not taken for their worth in the East. Therefore, I bring the immortal bard to the hinterlands. And now, sir, that the interview has ended, pray give me leave to depart. I'm sorry, I can't do that. You'll have to stay until we get this thing cleared up. Mr. Dillon, Doc would like to see you. Uh, All right, Chester. Stay here with Mr. Henry, will you? Sure, Mr. Dillon, sure. How are you feeling by now, Mr. Henry? Would you like some more water? 
Doc. What'd you find? Well, there's one thing. This man didn't die right away. I mean, not right when he was shot. Is that so? No. More likely bled to death. Inside. Uh-huh. Uh, you think he might have been able to climb up in the wagon after he was shot? Well, he might. There's another thing. Yeah. You see the way he's dressed? Now, you take a look at that. Oh, 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 what's going on? Come on. Come on, Doc. Chester. What's the matter with him? Chester. My gun when I was pouring him some water, Mr. Dillon. He must have gone through the window, Marshal. I tried to get it back. It went off. Take care of Chester, Doc. I'm going after him. When I went out of there, I didn't know how badly Chester was hurt. There was a lot of blood on his head and over his face. It was nearly dark outside, and the street was empty. It was supper time. I could see the women through the windows getting food ready. The kids were inside, too. Sure looked peaceful. But with Henry out with a gun, well, that wasn't a good thing to have running around loose in Dodge. Did you see a man run down the street, Miss Fletcher? Why, no. Oh, you better get inside and lock your door. Don't come out again. There's a killer loose. I walked the length of the street, listening, waiting. And when I got to the end, there was nothing. He hadn't taken a horse, I'd have heard that. And in a way, I was sorry, because if he'd tried to hide and dodge, there'd be no way to get out of shooting that wouldn't get women and kids hurt. A breeze came up, and swirls of dust flew around, and then settled as the air became still and hot again. I went back to Doc's place. Find him, Marshal? No. How's Chester? Oh, I'm fine, Mr. Dillon. Just creased my head. More mess than hurt. Oh, good, Chester. Uh, look, you want to go home or you want to work? I want to work. All right. Go down to the office. Get yourself another gun and round up some men. Many as you can. As long as Henry stays in town, we're in trouble. Now, keep your eyes open. Meet me back here. Yes, sir, Mr. Dillon. Take my gun with you, and if you see him, watch out. All right, now get going. Yes, sir. Now, Doc, I'm going to have to make you a deputy, too. Well, <laughs> well, maybe instead of digging out bullets, I'll be putting some in. It's not funny, Doc. Now, come on. All right, we'll start here. I'll take this side, you take the other. Get them in to go through their houses and tell them to look for their horses. Tell them what's happening. But 10 o'clock that night, as far as we could tell, Henry hadn't left town. There were plenty of places for him to hide, though. We had 50 men out searching. Chester and I were working along back of the express office. There were a couple of houses there we hadn't covered. 
You wouldn't think a man like that would be a killer, now would you, Mr. Dillon? I never saw a man yet couldn't be, Chester. Depends on your reasons for killing, I guess. Now, let's take a look behind these boxes. You think he could have got this far? Yeah, he might. A lot of back streets to sneak around in the dark. That's Miss Cullen's place there, isn't it? Yes, sir. Looks like she's still awake. Light burning back there. Yeah. <clears throat> Seem a bit cooler to you tonight, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, a bit. Evening, Miss Cullen. I'm sorry to get you up, but we're looking for a man, a stranger around. He's tall, thin. You seen anyone about tonight? No. No, I haven't. Uh huh. Uh, now, how's the kids? Oh, they're fine. Thank you, Mr. Dillon. Fine. Uh huh. Well, you keep the place locked tight, Miss Cullen. Don't let anybody in tonight unless you know who it is. All right. Good night, Mr. Dillon. Good night, ma'am. Well, now, that's strange. She didn't even say hello to me, and I know her better than you do, Mr. Dillon. Chester, round up the others. Get them over here. I don't know why she... He's in us. there with her. I think he's got the kids in the sleeping room. Oh. Sent her out to get rid of us. Now, I'm going to try and get in. Don't do anything when you come back. Just put the men around the house. Yes, sir. I'd seen Miss Cullen make a move with her head, and her eyes said the rest... When I told her to lock up, I shook my head, and I hoped she understood. I wanted that front door to stay open. I'll keep your promise as soon as I can. He was in there, all right. I could hear him. I wanted him alive, but I wasn't going to risk hurt to Miss Cullen or the kids getting him. I did what you asked. Don't hurt the children, please. They will never know this night. And in the morning, when they awake. What's that? You said you locked the door after you. No, don't. Don't. I shall keep the pistol turned to the girl's head, madam. Someone is here. They try to take me. Who is it? Who? Mr. Dillon, go away. Please. You'll kill us. You lied. You lied. Oh, tiger's heart wrapped in a woman's hide. Listen to me, Marshal Dillon. Throw your pistol in here, and then come in with your hands before you. I have no stomach for child killing, but I will not hesitate to do so. Ha. 
Now, give me the gun, Henry. No. You won't be able to get out of this. I must. That is living to be done. You know, that fancy talk isn't going to help either. Now, why don't you climb down? What happened to Matchett? Nothing happened to Matchett. Why'd you kill him? I didn't. In five minutes or less, there'll be 50 men or more around here. Now, what are you going to do? I don't know. If you didn't kill Matchett, you'll get a chance. I'll see to that. There's no use going on this way. Give me the gun. I cannot. It is my prop of salvation. No gun is salvation to anybody. Put it down. You must tell the men to go away, Marshal Dillon. I'll have to take one of these children with me for my protection. No! <laughs> Shed a tear for me, madam. I have the greater need. You do a lot of talking, mister. I'd like to see you turn the gun away from that kid's head. That'd take more than talk, wouldn't it, though? I have no skill with such a weapon. Why should I match with you? I want to live. You're going about it the wrong way. The smallest worm will turn being trod upon. Meaning? You gave me no choice when you brought me here. Would have been better to have left me lying in the dust. You don't understand. You don't know. Well, why don't you tell me? What good would it do? It depends. My life has been the theater. As a boy, I, I was a student of Shakespeare. He would look at me. Who would accept this face for Hamlet? This ill-shaped body for Romeo. <laughs> His speech has become my speech. But, and the fools only look. They cannot listen for laughing. There have been ugly men before you. It hasn't been cause for murder. Why'd you kill Magic? In New York, there was a man, a gross, stupid man, who fancied himself an interpreter of the bard. He, he took me, me, as his apprentice, and together we set out for the tour. I would play only the voices, never Richard, Never Henry, never Leah, only, only the voices. Whilst he, stumbling, drunken, he muddled and tore to a tatter the, the words that I should have spoken. You killed a man because you wanted to play a hero? How easily murder is discovered. Yes, yeah, sometimes, I guess. It was yesterday. We were leaving Hayes City. We'd played there for two days, and it made me a laughing stock. It was night, and he became drunk, and, 
and threatened to leave me in the next town. I made him stuff the wagon, and taking up a pistol, I shot him. He did not die at first, and when I saw what I had done, I, I wanted him to live. And I put him into the wagon, and, and I drove on, hoping to find a doctor. Then, as, as the night passed, I saw that he had died. And I was afraid. The wagon broke down? Yes. I, I put my purse into his clothes and took his name for mine. How I've hated the name of Sam Matchett. But you wouldn't understand. I wouldn't. Well, what now? I want to live. I want my chance. You've done a murder. I can't let you go. You know that. Don't make it harder. I lost my husband two years ago. I know what it is to be alone. You've been alone, haven't you? I'm sorry. But you killed someone. We may pity, though not pardon, dear. <laughs> I'm going now, Marshal. If you walk out of there with your gun, you're a dead man. Uh, death's a great disguiser. I must have the chance. Don't do it, Matchett. There'll be killing. Madam, forgive me. I would not have harmed your children. Matchett, put down your gun. Let me go my way. Please. There are a lot of men waiting for you out there, Matchett. You know what'll happen if you open the door. Don't do it, Matchett. the rub, for in that sleep of death, what dreams may Matchups. going to die. The minute he opened that door, he knew it. And maybe he wanted to, because he fired first a single shot. We buried him in back of the church, and I found some words in a book to put on his grave. He that dies pays all debts.
Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Anthony Ellis, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Hans Conrad was featured as Henry, with Mary Lansing as Mrs. Cullen. Parley Bear as Chester, and Howard McNear as Doc. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Roy Rowan speaking. Remember, gangbusters going to action Saturday nights on the CBS radio network. August 23rd, 1952, that was Gunsmoke, and the name of that episode was Shakespeare. And of course, uh, Hans Conried was someone that, uh, as baby boomers, we remember very well. He was born in 1917 in Baltimore, and his father was named uh, Hans, and his mother was Edith, and their last name was Conried. Uh, some people said that his real name was Frank Foster, but that's not true. Now, his mother's maiden name, interestingly enough, was Gildersleeve. <laughs> uh, his mother was a direct descendant of pilgrims, and his father was a Jewish immigrant who came from Austria. And Hans was raised both in Baltimore and in New York City. He studied acting at Columbia University and went on to play major classical roles on stage. Uh, he made a splash in radio. He had a number of uh, radio roles on the George Burns and Gracie Allen show, on uh, My Friend Irma. And then we remember him probably one of the first places I remember him was playing Uncle Tanoose on the Danny Thomas uh, television program, Make Room for Daddy. He also was a frequent guest on I Love Lucy. The other thing he did was a lot of voiceover work. Remember, he played uh, Captain Hook in the uh, animated Peter Pan from Walt Disney back in the early 50s. And then he also did a lot of work on the Rocky Bullwinkle shows and Fractured Fairy Tales. He did a lot of cartoons. I remember he would do a lot of talk shows, too, like the old Jack Parr show. Don't remember him so much on Carson. I remember him on Jack Parr, and I remember him being a celebrity guest on game shows, like um, like I've Got a Secret or What's My Line, uh, a number of shows like that he would make frequent uh, frequent appearances on. Hans Conrad, he died in 1982 in Burbank. I always thought of him. I always associated him with New York. Ironically, he died in Burbank, so he probably had made his home in Los Angeles. Quite a, quite a character. Well, that's it uh, on Gunsmoke for this week, but don't worry, we'll have another episode next time we get together. Chester is signaling. Is that what you're doing, Chester? You're, oh, you're rubbing your head. He is signaling me while he's rubbing his head. <laughs>
we're all out of time. So what we're going to do now, I guess I'm going to have to do it by myself. Chester's kind of laying back there on the sound console, just rubbing his head. I'm going to pick up all the shows and carry them back into the vault and lock things up. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. Don't worry about it, though. We'll be back, and we will do it all over again next time, and we'll have a whole new slate of shows. This is Bob Bro. I am so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me. <laughs>